I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. Uh, we love to watch Home Alone 2. Pretty quickly found in Good York. for you. He gets he gets to a he gets to a hotel pretty immediately. Yeah, it, sometimes I look at my Kevin, and if I don't have, um, I have a Kevin. You do have a Kevin. Sometimes I look at my Kevin and I, um, I say, you know, did I adopt you or did you adopt me? Um, uh, yeah, where we love to watch. <laughs> We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. If we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our third week of cursed. Christmas quickies, where we are doing tantric short episodes for us, which are 45 minutes to an hour. Let's, let's try to do 45 minutes on this one. Um, and talking about uh, movies that are holiday staples to some people, and uh, but are cursed in some way. This one has a very funny curse. It's like it has the Groundhog Day curse. We're doing Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Um because it is a movie that I have to imagine someone sat down with the script of Home Alone 1 and just crossed out things. I and, – and added slightly new things. Yeah. My, my daughter, who likes – my nine-year-old watched this with me. She likes both Home Alone movies. She knew I was writing notes for the podcast and she kept saying things like – Make sure you tell people, like, the pigeon lady is just like that other old guy from last. This is, like, the same movie. Uh, so she could be a guest on this. And it is. It her is. And George Clu- her and George Lucas. It's, like, rhyming. It's, it is rhyming. It is the exact same movie as the first one. Except with everything a little bit bigger, more violent. It's more uh, demented less, on kind of every it's level. It's so demented. And I love it for it. I really do. It, the first movie is a better movie. The first movie, Home Alone, sets up a lot of, like, here's what it's like to be home alone. And he doesn't do realistic things to the robbers, but, like, he does things that they could theoretically walk away from fine. In this movie, all the circumstances are crazier, nuttier. Everything is like a fucking clock to make sure everything grinds together in a certain way it spends no time establishing him as a character or the family the family is pretty kind of fine with it in this time so much of the first movie which i recently rewatched as well christmas time is like the family feeling pained at losing him the mom's journey of like coming back it's like such an afterthought in this movie it is hilarious it's part of the demented quality of it the parents don't seem that worried until like the last 15 minutes and then they seem immediately annoyed again but like even let's let's skip to the ending so this there's a there's more than a few funny memes on twitter adjusting for inflation that like the ending line of this movie is the dad screaming kevin you spent nine hundred and forty-three dollars and sixty-seven dollars and forty-three cents on room service. Uh, room service, and he runs away. But like that shows you how close they are hewing to the formula because the first movie ends with a much more realistic Buzz going, "Kevin, what did you do to my room?" and he and he runs away, and they are just like, "Fucking okay." What's the line that ends it on the literally the exact same note? But it's more – it made sense for Buzz to be like, hey, you fucked up my room. I'm not happy about that under any circumstances. It makes way less sense for the dad after all this – and they have a free hotel room and all these presents that somehow came from Kevin's thing that no one questions or ever asks about. He's just a funny guy or whatever. <laughs> but, <laughs> what a funny guy. <laughs> what a funny guy. For his dad to flip out over a room service bill uh, after all this happened, that's the Twitter joke. But it is just like, yeah, it doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to be the same. And I love – I there is there's so many sequels. There's two ways to do a sequel. There's – you expand on the story from the first one. Or you basically do the same thing again, but bigger and different. I don't think there's a better example in cinema history where a sequel has taken that latter version of a sequel and made it so 
literal. They're like, let's not change anything. Beat for beat. Beat for beat, moment to moment, it is the same. It is so funny, it is so demented, and it's still, because I have such a nostalgic attachment to this movie, still makes me like it Christmas. I... It's like, also hate- it's also un, 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 unconscionably long. It's like an hour and fifty three minutes. It's two hours. It is oh, yeah. It is uh, the first one's an hour and forty minutes. I know, and that movie spends used- time with the family. It spends time getting to know what it's like having to deal with this stuff. Yes, this so one is just like fucking set piece. Set every piece, idea was put in. There's yeah. so many antagonists in this movie. <laughs> so there's many an entire. There's like. A, a soft set of antagonists for Kevin to overcome, which is the, you know, um, uh, the, the hotel, hotel staff. staff. And Ooh. then he has to uh, overcome uh, two deranged murderers who want to kill him and literally say, nothing, nothing would make me happier than to shoot you. <laughs> and the movie's just like, yeah, this is a movie for kids for sure. <laughs> I, I love, so I actually said like the... I think you could sum up the differences of this movie and the way it approaches everything. In the first movie, Marv gets hurt and he's like, I'm going to kill that kid. Which is a statement that sometimes even parents say to themselves. Like, In this God, context, this is- it's certainly actionable in a court case, like if you were being yeah. recorded. But you, <laughs> I'm you talking about the, the first idea. movie. I'm going yeah, to kill says, him. I'm going I'm to kill this kid. This kid is frustrating me so much. And this one, he goes in a much more dark turn after he, like, falls down something. He's like, I'm going to murder that kid. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, yeah, we have graduated from, oh, my God, this kid is really causing us problems to, like, actually, my goal is to shoot this kid in the face. <laughs> so, and, okay. Yeah. I, I, well, I really quickly want to lay a little bit of groundwork. Okay. Because I think it's important for later. I think Home Alone 1 is a masterpiece. I think it's a movie that I watch every year, and then every year I think it gets stronger. Um, it is the weirdest culture war touch point on Twitter I have ever seen. This is my first. We talked. We talked. We did an episode on Home Alone for part of our Christmas classics. We both unabashedly love it, and we thought the thing about like how dare this rich kid torture these two robbers. Is like you've never seen this movie, and you read a synopsis, and you're like turning this into a class warrior thing, and it makes there's a it lot is, of things you can turn into a class warrior thing. This is a bizarre one. Like watch the goddamn movie. These robbers are not like struggling to survive. They are uh, joyfully destroying and robbing houses, and then take perverse joy in torturing a child yes yes and they literally threaten a child multiple times like this is not this is it's one of those movies where people are like it's like a libertarian rag it's death wish for kids and i'm like i need i it is such a touch grass moment it is it is like if you are fighting the civil war and you're like you know what i need to invest twenty thousand soldiers in defending a really nice tree swing like there is no there is no strategic value to be gained in your culture war for going after home alone one two i understand if it's annoying that it's like a rich kid who has everything and he's mean to his parents and like you know his dad is like a rich guy with no immediate you know clear sign of where he made his money i can understand like some of the class things being like being like, you know, like, I, I can't connect with this kid. Or being like, you know what, I don't really like Christmas movies. I can also respect that. Or yeah. being like Macaulay Culkin, I think he's annoying or whatever as a performer. Yeah. I can also respect all of that. It's all fine, right? It is this thing where people are, like, going hard at home alone. That is, so the thing you say, like, where it's Because like it villainizes make... the robbers. Yes, <laughs> It's also, it's it's one of those things where it's just such a stupid thing to fight over, but, like, every year it happens, this is my first year off Twitter since 2007, and I'm so relieved to not have to read whatever the fuck is going on in that space, and I, you know, uh, people are being silly billies about it, I will, I want to wrap up this point so we can talk about Home Alone 2, I think this is an important place to, to base it. Every plot point in Home Alone 1, essentially is addressed by the movie. It is a clockwork script. It is 
it's a script that that you could study in film class. Like, yeah. if you think that it's, you're like, that doesn't make sense. How would they get to the gate? And you're like, they showed it to you ten minutes ago. It's yeah. a movie that moves fast. It gives you a lot of information really quickly. It operates at a kid's sense of attention to detail. Yeah, it is a great movie. It's heartwarming. It does everything it intends to do. I think Macaulay Culkin is a revelation in that movie. I think he's absolutely yeah. worth the star making turn, though obviously. Um, it did a lot of bad negative effects to his yeah. life. Yeah. Um, his dad was also thought it was a star-making turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His parents effect. decided it was, yeah. a, it was a real moneymaker for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Home Alone 2, um, Macaulay's career had progressed. Like, those two years are huge for for a kid. And he, he changed as a performer, Right. Um, he is far more self-conscious and more cloying and cute. A way we talked about with like getting even with dad, like yeah. Macaulay became a bad actor. He was a natural actor as a kid and then he became a bad kid actor and then he went back to becoming a good actor, I think, in his, in his, you know, monster party kind of, or not monster party. Saved. Um, party monster. Saved. And saved. He's gonna yeah. save. Saved. It's a good movie. Um, and you know, he, he went back to being a good actor later with some, you know. Some, some perspective on life. This movie is weird because I think people confuse the demented quality of this movie with the first movie. Yeah. Which makes the first movie look better and worse in comparison because it's the same people. This is not a movie where Chris Columbus was busy and they farmed it out to some random dude. Only is- one. There's 11 kids. Only one of them is recast. That's how much of the same people. Yes. And, and my point here is this, before I, I pass the mic, I pass the, the, the talking beanbag. Um, we have to ship that. That's a long <laughs> delay. We added it together so you guys don't notice, but it is such a long delay, even with one day FedEx. Yeah, exactly. But it's the only way our relationship works. So, you know, yeah. we need it. Um, is this. I think that the second movie, I kind of wish it didn't exist because it makes the first movie look better, but also worse. Because the, it makes the first movie look better because it, you realize the intricate way that script is put together. That in a movie that is 15 or 20 minutes shorter works on every emotional level. It's clean. It's beautiful. That John Williams score is, is amazing. Polar Express, Elf, basically every movie, every Christmas movie on the planet after that ripped it off. Like, yeah. It is so good. It's beautiful. I've heard mm-hmm. it live in orchestra. I I went and saw the Chicago Orchestra at some point, and they were playing a bunch of Christmas classics in the mix, and it was beautiful. What I'll say here is that it it also makes the first movie look worse because, as I said, it's made by the same people. So it's very easy to cast back the sort of like demented view of the city. That this that New York is this like disgusting urban wasteland where a child gets threatened by pedophile sex workers <laughs> and pedophile cabbies and pedophiles out in the in, in the wild. A movies that that could, its politics are very confused. I can see it being uncharitably cast backwards retroactively on the first mm-hmm. movie. Um, if you haven't seen either of the movies, you're just operating in bad faith when you give shit to these movies. But like, I think some people have seen one and two. And so hated, too, that it, like, cast a shadow in reverse um, mm-hmm. on on it. Two is a demented movie all on its own. I do not think that its quality represents the first movie. I love it because it is pathological in its desire to just give you more of the thing you like. <laughs> and... I respect it a little bit for it. And the movie knows. It does feel like Kevin got in a coma at the end of the first movie and is now dreaming. He's a sassier kid. His traps are meaner. (laughs) He actually touched the wrong wire at the end of the first movie. (laughs) So a movie knowing what it's doing is not the defense of the movie. But this movie knows what it's doing. It makes a very funny joke around. They don't even get a different, like... He does the same video cassette thing where he plays this thing that perfectly encapsulates the scenes he needs. And that movie, uh, in the first movie, is called Angels with Filthy Souls, and it was made for – it's not a real movie. It was made for Home Alone. And in this one, they make basically the same scene but with a Christmas theme and a few other dialogue changes that corresponds perfectly. And it's called Angels with Filthier Souls. And I love that as a little, like – 
we know a hundred percent what this is and what we're doing. And I think part of the reason it works for me is it is extraordinarily entertaining to watch throughout. It is a two hour runtime. I got to tell you, Peter, that two hour runtime goes by really quickly. They are always throwing new shit and it's surrounded by, I mean, you have Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern being even more demented, even more crazy, dropping the pretense of clever robbers and just like, we're going to rob a goddamn toy store. (laughs) Like it is, instead of the wet bandits, they're the sticky bandits, which even like, at first it was like, why are you doing that? You're just being cruel to these people. And he's like, I want to have a name. And now it's like. It is so stupid that he's grabbing, wraps his hands with masking tape to have a new thing that even um, Harry doesn't even like give it that much seriousness around it. And it is, it is, but it, it also has Tim Curry being very funny and very schemy for no reason. And it has all these wonderful little like, just kind of like kid Christmas porn scenes of like this toy store that only emits you know, only exists in your fantasy world. And it's like, hey, instead of his his like fun day being like he eats an ice cream scoop and no one tells him he can't have more ice cream, what if he gets a fucking limo and a pizza and watches The Grinch and then goes to the most magical toy store of all time and makes friends with the goddamn owner who gives him presents and stuff like that? It is just excess on every level. And I think that's epitomized with the with the traps which, look, I may get some shit for this from anyone. Because the traps in the first movie are conceptually someone who owns a house could put together reasonably and cause these robbers pain, but not kill them ten times more. One of them is making them step on micro-machines. Getting yeah. them to somehow take them Or glass, off. glass, or, or ornaments. Or ornaments, yes. Yeah, and micro-machines. But, like, he, uh... I'm saying this that's one, like he's not it's not like that demented. You're like, I'm just going to put something on the ground that you shouldn't step on. I have a BB gun anyways. I'm going to put it out of a dog door. I'm going to put some water on the stairs and it's going to turn into ice. This one is like not only does he throw bricks from five stories with pinpoint accuracy each time in a very funny scene. But, like, the one that gets me, there's so many times, like, he electrocutes Marv to the point that his skeleton shows up, which is so (laughs) funny, and he keeps just turning a battery up. But the one that is, like, the fucking funniest of all time, and it just makes me laugh that, like, they're just like, you know what, it doesn't matter. We're Looney Tunes at this point. Um, Is the one where Harry gets his head set on fire again, which in the first movie was the end of it. Because that's bad enough. You get your head set on fire. You don't want that. A blowtorch rigging. He gets his head set on fire. And then Kevin has disconnected the water and filled the toilet with gasoline. And he dips his head in the gasoline. And there is an explosion that rocks five windows. And the light fixtures are on fire in the background. And Harry just takes his head out like, got a little black soot on me. (laughs) Like, that man is dead. And burned to a crisp, and his brain has leaked out. And in this movie, it's like, you know what, it just doesn't matter. And I love the traps in this because the type of excess that is being shown here and like complete uh, disconnection from the, the heightened reality of the first one is like. It's more entertaining. It's the, the the I like when you get to the fireworks factory in both of these movies. The first one just feels so minor compared to the yeah. insanity of this one. I think part of the factor is also like Macaulay Culkin is less cute in this one because he's gotten a little older and he's gotten more yeah. self self uh, aware in his performance. Like, um, like he feels like an older kid doing these yeah. things like there's yeah there's all the, the dark some of the darkness is that like it no longer feels like it's like well if a kid did this to you like what the fuck's wrong with you he feels a lot older than 10 i don't know if he was like 14 at this time but like he just he looks way taller and bigger he's more self-assured he's like pulling yeah. off burns against his family um like uh like he calls his uncle a cheapskate. Like, as a power fantasy, it operates on 
Every single level. It's yeah. like if you were watching the first movie and you were, you were frustrated by the five minutes where Kevin's disempowered before he gets the house to himself. Like, yeah. if you're frustrated by that, sit tight. The next movie will... Kevin basically slips on ice and that's it. After that, it's nothing but smooth sailing for this kid. Like, yeah. he yeah. He, basi- he basically runs the fucking table, like, from... He gets slightly embarrassed at, like, a school pageant... Everyone blames him. This is such I know. A, so this Maya, such a Maya was so like, Maya was so incensed by the fact that like him pushing Buzz off of him, embarrassing him during his solo, somehow resulted in him getting in trouble. I also just love the idea that like he gets sent up to the attic again. Everyone's complaining about how annoying Kevin is. I love this thing of like they left their kid home, an eight year old. They left an eight year old home alone for a week by himself to struggle and it changed not an iota of the dynamic of this family in any it made him too independent yeah (laughs) it made everyone still is annoyed by kevin and hates him kevin still kind of hates this family well kevin's like wait i actually don't need you fuckers uh yeah i yeah it's yeah i really don't he doesn't really he needs their he needs their money but like yeah he, he like, does not you know, I you could also just point to this movie wanting to hit the same beats but not giving a shit. The whole thing in the first movie is that they overslept because there's a power storm, the power st- or a, a lightning storm or a sorry a winter storm that blows power lines over, and that's why the power goes out and that's why their alarms don't go off. Which is also again in that kind of clockwork script, it's important why they can't call the house because like. They, they need to have some reason that they can't just call Kevin answers and they're like, or Kevin can call out and try to call someone that he knows. Yes. In this one, they oversleep again. They don't give any reason to why their no. alarms don't go off at all. The alarms are just blinking at 12 midnight and they wake up and go, we did it again. Like it's, if you if you could wake up forty five minutes before an international flight and successfully get like fourteen out of well, fifteen this time people on an international flight yeah. because yeah. the power went out, don't you think it would make you hubristic in the future that you could pull off anything? Like <laughs> that's, if that's like, we don't need to plug in this fucking thing. We're gonna we're gonna get there. Um, so okay, so the parents let's let's stay there for a second. The parents are more demented. The key the hot word for tonight is demented. Because the parents seem less interested when they first get lost and they're talking to like Miami PD or whatever. Uh they're like, oh, but what? they make a joke and they're like, oh, but we never lost our luggage. And they knock on the door and then they laugh and then they do not seem and then they stop laughing because they can tell socially it's a weird thing to be laughing when you've lost your kid. And yeah. it's not that they say, like, oh, he'll probably be fine. He was fine last time. They, the purpose of Well, they the don't even is, know where he is at this point. Yeah, the purpose the of thing. the scene is for them to go in and be like, we don't know where our son is. You need to help us, like, walk through these steps. And they're, like, making jokes and shit. And, like, I... I understand if Catherine O'Hara is in your movie, it's, like, fun to, like, write goofy dialogue for her. But, like, I think that the key part of the reason that this movie feels so demented to people, and it casts back on the first movie. So the first movie, they realize shit is fucked up in France, and she doesn't even leave the airport. She immediately is trying to get to where she needs to go. People give the dad a lot of shit, but I also, like, the dad has to make sure he doesn't lose one of their other children. Yeah. Um... In this, in Home Alone 2, I don't know why the whole family needs to travel wherever they're going. Like, leave your brother's kids in Miami. Go home with just your children. You yeah, well, the whole thing is this point, it's not like they can't get on a flight. It's that they just have no idea where he is. Yeah. Because he was at yeah, the so, airport, now he's not there. So here's the reason, the, the reason that this movie, Home Alone 2, frustrates people so much. They need to wait for the credit card to pop before they they can find where they need to go. Whatever. Yeah. They don't explore other routes. They're just basically waiting for a cop to tell them what to do. Whatever. That truly takes over an hour of the runtime to figure out that he's in New York, right? Yeah. And the way that the really shoddy way, like the movie is edited, the movie is edited so poorly. The, the, every scene is interesting, but the movie is edited so poorly. They find out he's in New York, right? That the credit yeah. card pops for some reason. It pops as stolen, which is like, well, no, that's what they should... did. They they reported it as stolen, but 
Don't they want it, their kid to have access to the cat? Whatever. Regardless. They, the cops they, told him to report it as stolen, so it's the only way to get it to flag in the system if yeah. it gets wrong. But, like, okay, great, whatever. If it flags is stolen, it kicks off the first conflict with the, the Plaza Hotel staff. It makes Kevin homeless. <laughs> so, great. Good yeah, job, Jared. And then, and then from there, it truly takes them, like, I think a half an hour, maybe more of the movie runtime before Catherine O'Hara shows up in New York. And there's no communication that, like, flights aren't going to New York right now, and she doesn't try and get on a train, she doesn't try and get on a plane, she doesn't try and get in an automobile. Um, It's just, like, it is just her being like, well, I guess I need to get to New York at some point. And then the movie edits over all of that because it's already way too fucking long. And it takes her truly half an hour to show up in New York. And by then, Kevin is safe. He's figured out his plan for the day. His plan is to murder these two people. <laughs> yeah. And it's frustrating. So, it is frustrating. The parents basically don't matter in this movie. They basically- so I think you're 100% right. This movie is very interesting scene to scene or very fun to watch scene to scene. But it holds up to absolutely no scrutiny whatsoever. And you're right. It edits over all the parts that if you want to go and say, well, wait a second, this makes no sense. So let's talk about the getting lost at the airport scene. In the first movie, they always thought they had Kevin there. There was two vans. They get on the airplane. They make a big case that everyone has different seats. Everyone else thought that someone else had him. And so there was no checking. In this one, they all essentially go together. They confirm he's in the van. They're all running in the same place. They're late for the airplane. Just get on and take your seats. We're going to take off in a moment. Sure. They are, though, paranoid that everyone is there. They make that point earlier. So they're on a plane for three, three and a half hours. Why wouldn't they check at that point on the plane that everyone is on there? Yes, they couldn't check as they were getting into the plane. But they could then go, as we're walking down the aisle, we're the last 14 people Let's look behind us and see if scan. we're all here. Actually, I don't even care if you scan for your nieces and nephews. Do a scan for your own children. Or maybe the one you left last time. So they're on the plane. Maybe the one she's you like, lost I, last year. <laughs> she's like, I feel like I forgot something. Here's the truly demented part about this if you've ever flown. I don't care if you've flown with work colleagues who who are not who are other adults that you don't need to keep track of. So they're all on separate seats on this airplane again. Fine. The, they get off the plane, and then they are at baggage claim, getting their bags for a funny scene. I mean, in my opinion, it's funny where they're like, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin down the line. Kevin's not here. Kevin's not here. Kevin's not here. Do you know how fucking insane you need to be to be like not gather outside of the gate for everyone to walk to baggage claim together? Can you imagine me like... It can be in some airports, that can be like a 15 or 20 minute walk. I Like the... Uh, Miami airport. Like yeah. the idea that like, if you get off the plane and you're meeting at baggage claim and you're traveling with a work colleague so you have different seats, no one just goes and goes, I'm going to make no communication whatsoever. I'm just going to walk to baggage claim. Hopefully we meet up there and then get our Uber to whatever the thing is. These people, like, clearly just all the kids, all the adults just got off the plane, waited for nobody, and walked to baggage claim. (laughs) And then they're all together and no one notices that one of their kids is missing until they have to get in the bag. I think that, like, you you can make a case that these parents have a brain cloud that makes <laughs> Kevin invisible to them under normal circumstances and they have to actively notice when he's gone because there's a scene at the end of the movie, they're all opening presents and Kevin decides he's going to go give a gift to the pigeon lady. They're all there, they hand him a present. He walks out of the room and leaves the hotel and nobody notices that he's done this. I got to tell no. you... If my 10-year-old disappeared during the present opening, I would probably notice in two minutes. He's gone. He walks across. He leaves the hotel, which is elevator waiting. He walks across the street to Central Park, has a conversation. No one has noticed that Kevin has was there moments ago. They must have something where Kevin is rendered invisible at all times <laughs> to their brain. And he is that, their most irrelevant child, yes. There's just... There's, <laughs> It is so funny how 
constantly. Like, let's say he left and he got kidnapped by somebody's walk around Central Park by himself as a 10-year-old. How long before they notice, hey, did we lose Kevin again? How many times off screen has Kevin gone missing and no one noticed? Because they don't notice him at all to a, again, I, I keep calling this movie pathological. You call it demented. It's like, yeah, Kevin can just leave. No one, no. even though they lost him. This is the plot of, he, Kevin, literally the plot of the movie is they've lost him. It's called Lost in New York. Yeah. And he slips out at the end unnoticed again. So the character growth here is that Kevin doesn't think he made his family disappear, right? Kevin shows, yeah. realized he was in New York with a bag of cash and chooses to party. Yeah. respectable right yeah um I, I appreciate that as like a growth on the formula however the parents seem to have become worse parents since the first movie i think you could actually have a pretty adult debate about the first movie about whether or not they're bad parents i think that the movie spends a lot of time plot wise like we talked about earlier making it very clear that a bunch of weird shit happened and fate basically conspired to make this situation happen. And I and don't think that... And I, they I realize that, hold that on. Not, that Catherine O'Hara is not a bad mother. I think Catherine O'Hara yeah. is a good mother. I think John Hurd is a bad dad for different reasons altogether. Yeah. Um, but I don't think Catherine O'Hara is a bad mother for losing Kevin. And I think the entire movie is about appreciating each other and wanting each other to be around, even when you're fucking frustrated with your kid. This yeah. movie just... It's just completely, it, it, it's like, it's like they wanted to kill the whole family, but they're like, that's a little too demented. They should exist, just be entirely irrelevant, but also yeah. Kevin should be irrelevant to them. Like, they just he, can't, they can't make a parse. So that your analogy. So, but hold on, but your, even your that part. Really quickly. I, I, okay. I, yeah. You mentioned being on a work trip with colleagues, whatever. I don't fly for work. But it's something I can relate to is I think last year or the year before I went to a bachelor party. Have you ever been to a bachelor party where people are still like drinking and partying on the travel day? I mean, I was at yours. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yes. So uh, I went to one in Austin. So yeah. everybody, it was nobody's town. Yeah. Um, all of us needed to get on a flight at some point on Sunday. Some of us, like me, um, decided to get drunk in the morning also and just have fun with it. And I remember being at the airport and being like, I remember, I'm just going to make up fake names, Colin, Greg, Mike, and Steve uh, all needed to get on this one flight back to San Diego. And these two people are a similar flight to Chicago at the same time, yada, yada. At the airport, I wasn't like, you know, I was like trying to download podcasts or whatever. At the airport, I was not like watching over them like a hawk, but I was like, you know, before I get on this flight, I should make sure they found the gate. All of us have been drinking all day. Yeah. Right? Right? Like, mm -hmm. just a basic, just real quick check-in. And I found out one of them had checked in at the wrong terminal because he took a different yeah. Uber there. And I texted him. And I said, hey, Mike, are you at Terminal 2? And he went, ah, shit. I'll take the shuttle or whatever the fuck it is at Austin. Over. I took more responsibility for a drunk man that I... I saw him at the wedding. I've never seen him since. Um, yeah. That I will never see again, possibly. Uh, well, then Kevin's parents did over him. But I, yeah, but I, I think that is right. Like in the first movie, like you were saying, though, like they notice on the plane because they're like, oh, wait, maybe I didn't see Kevin. And they are like, oh. And again, at this point, they have not lost a kid before. No. And so they just – they realize on the plane – and the plot of that movie is obviously they're going all the way to France. By the time they realize that they're over the ocean, the plane's not going to turn around. It's – it's they're just going to get to France and unfortunately they have to figure it out. So they have to like wrestle with the fact on the plane. They don't notice tow baggage claim. Like they went the whole flight. <laughs> no one double-checked. No one looked behind them. They all walked as a group probably to baggage claim. They all lined up and waited for bags, which takes – you sometimes sit there for like 20 minutes. No one looked around. It literally is like until this, this – oh, yeah. I, there's a son named Kevin. I've actually forgot about him. I have the Dory disease specifically about my son Kevin. <laughs> I mean it's it's because they didn't want to – like they kind of didn't want to do the same scene on the plane because it would probably be like, hey, go right back to this airport actually because we're not over international waters and all the other – things that come with it. It is 
is just a series of the most demented goddamn things and like it just doesn't care and i respect it completely for <laughs> i mean i i do i know that sounds silly and like i'm making a joke but like I do think it's actually in fitting with something I have said on this show over and over and over and over that I like movies that are just based in excess. And I think this movie takes a formula and literally just writes bigger in every dialogue line, every plot decision, bigger, funnier, stupider, meaner. And like that's its entire script contribution. I mean, and I respect it for making, I think, one of the most both similar sequels of all time and insane sequels on every aspect of it i and yet it's still because it's like the home alone trappings which are so like integral to my christmas memories it still works as a christmas thing for me like it's it is surprising like it still has this, john williams score pieces yep. it still has a great, great score. cast it still looks good it is yep. shooting new york in the you know christmas time yep. um or you know a mocked up version of christmas i'm sure that shot a lot of this in like the fall or whatever some of it was definitely new york though yeah yeah like i i get the christmas that's what i, I was saying uh compared to polar express last week I do get Christmas vibes off of this thing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm huffing the fumes, but like I'm getting, I'm getting Christmas vibes off of this. Some of that is pure nostalgia, right? But like we yeah. just, I, I, I have been, I, I turned on this movie like five years ago, and I still watch it once or twice a year somehow, just between my family and I. <laughs> like I, I don't quite know. We also talked about this in the Ghostbusters two episode years ago, five six years ago, it was a long time yeah. ago. Um, I've seen this movie more than I've seen Ghostbusters. Uh, I've seen this movie and Ghostbusters 2 more than I've seen the original. I've yep. seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 more than I've seen the original. Like, yeah. for some reason when I was a kid, they would make these sequels that were more guided towards my interests. And, like, yeah. it hit me, like, on the fucking forehead. <laughs> and it hit, like, eight-year-old me on the forehead. I thought Ghostbusters 2, I mean... Maya likes this one better than the original too. Like there is something I, all about of my like nephews it's, are this way too. Yeah, all of my nephews they, like this one more than the original, and they honestly rank it the first one lower than the new. I think it's the fifth one, the one that just came out on Disney Plus. It's like the six, like, yeah, six. They they rank six. It's like six or two, and then one. Like, yeah. I don't fucking get it. Well, but I I do think because you got it as a kid too. It's but like as a kid, I felt that way. I don't fucking get it now, but like I get it's it's way. bigger and more excessive. It's a power fantasy, yeah. and it doesn't have any of the other like all the stuff with the mom. It's fucking boring for kids. Like yeah. that that they this is like hitting at like hit hit hit. It's like yeah. it's like it's it's that kind of thing. I guess my question to you is Peter because I know that you said you kind of hate yourself for liking this movie and mm-hmm. you hate that it gives you Christmas and you think it's a and, like, you gave it two and a half stars on, on Letterboxd, but you've seen this. You said, I don't even actually have to rewatch this for the show. I actually didn't need to rewatch this either for the show, but I've no. I've never not rewatched a movie for the show, even for a Christmas quickie. Um, this is, so I this get... is my, I'm paying my annual fee to, to Chris yeah. Columbus, who has but, made my Christmases more beautiful and also uh, more grimly depressing than so i so i so i guess though here's my honest question like you have a nostalgic love for this movie i think as an adult this movie is so fucking insane it's you said it's enjoyable scene to scene but it doesn't make logical sense why do you hate yourself for liking this movie <laughs> like I, I i mean I'm i'm not like trying to say you need to feel the same way that i do but like I kind of embrace the complete madness of this movie and like love it for that. It's a different type of love that I have for Home Alone, but like it seems like you're talking yourself into needing to hate this movie because this movie is a inferior and like bigger and dumber version of the first. And I agree with that a hundred percent. But why is that not? It's because own I spend love- I spend 49% of the time watching this movie just being frustrated and annoyed. And why? 51% though? because it is a, it's an annoying movie. Kept, like, but you said you like it, though. But, like, it's an annoying movie that I also like. Like, <laughs> but, there, are, there are moments that hit with that Chris Columbus joy that I'm like, yeah. okay. Like, 
this absolutely feels like the original. Everything getting into the Plaza Hotel and him pulling off little pranks to like make them use his dad's credit card is just pure credit card. No problem. You got it. (laughs) Every line. I love Tim Curry so much. Like all of that is so great. But this movie hits this point where it's honestly, it's a length problem. I would say, um, where the movie hits a point where the pacing cannot keep up with my brain. I need the pacing to outpace my brain trying to activate. Like Ghostbusters 2 is a movie that outpaces my brain's ability to have critical thought. I yeah. think Ghostbusters 2 is actually good because of that. Like I, it out- I think we both came down on Ghostbusters 2 being actually good. Yeah, like, I think it outpaces my brain's ability to be negative. Yeah. Um, I think that this movie is, is the, the pacing is too sluggish, maybe. There's there's always a point about an hour in where I'm like, why don't I just watch the first one? There's always the, the, a point. There's one part that really slows it down. It's the only, like, non-fireworks thing, and it's also, again, just completely insane. So, the... <laughs> The, the 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 snow shovel guy in the first one, he runs into him at the store and he runs into him at church. And, like, he has these, like, scary encounters that you could have if you were scared of the neighbor that lived next door. I there is a very funny – there is a funny thing that you can go into. I don't feel like I've seen on Twitter as a easy thing to, like, pick the – thing apart although i'm sure it's been there or on a cracked article is like hey why didn't anyone call that guy <laughs> they're calling all their neighbors there's a guy who lives right next door that didn't go anywhere never goes anywhere no one called him to check on kevin at any point which i think is very funny but he only actually responds through to a uh, knife through a block of wood <laughs> yeah clearly <laughs> so in this one he meets just a lady in central park which is its own different thing their bonding moment isn't like in a church that they both happened to be in that was in the neighborhood. She takes him to an attic on top of an opera house, which is an insane thing for an adult to do to mm-hmm. a child under any circumstances. Like, yes, she is sweet in this movie, but it's like, come to my attic, my creepy attic I live in. Not okay. Like, but again, it just speaks to the laziness and insanity of like, Man, I really respect how little they cared. If it made sense, they just needed to be the same. And I like I it's it, it is a boring part of it because it's it's it doesn't have any of the same emotional resonance as those same scenes in the first one. So it ends up being boring, boring. But I still respect it. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> so do I will say something positive about that as well. Yeah. So okay. For, first off, actually something negative. Um. Do, okay. If I I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something. Yeah. In that scene. The orchestra is John Williams's orchestra, and he's actually this is the, these are the people that actually played on the soundtrack, and you know this is this these are his people, and that's John Williams. Would you believe me? Sure, it's not true. Um, yeah. That's not John Williams. But I, I also don't reason, care. <laughs> I thought no, no no. I thought the reason that they were like oh well, let's just like if she has like an interest in something, yeah. let's make it like the, the music. And it's John Williams. But they do that way later after the movie is shot. Like, you think they're coming in for the middle of the movie? (laughs) It's true. It's true. I just, I think that's so weird that it's not actually John Williams and the orchestra. (laughs) Anyways, the point here is Some little peep assumption that happened Okay, so I'm going to start with the most insane criticism of this movie that I saw, which is that um, Kevin's family is so rich, they should just take in that homeless person, which is... I think it's a real sign of derangement that, you, that like critical derangement. Like you, you're like, you know, who's responsible for this, this homeless person in her fifties, a nine year old, a 10 year old is really like, and also ever also like that shows that that person I mean, has isn't no that what, isn't that what Ron DeSantis got in trouble for shipping people to other States? Like yes. you're like, Hey, also the parents don't know she exists. Like the the kids like come meet my family, the pigeon lady, and they'll take you. They'll, you'll live in our house in Chicago. Like, come. what are they gonna do? Okay, so the point is also this: like that showed a critical misunderstanding of how homeless outreach works, and that it, yeah. the home, point of homeless outreach is not, um, hey, if you're gonna be helping these people, you need to make them your free roommate. <laughs> you yeah. need, like, um, that's not how this works. But yeah. as someone who every year tries to do. Um, some homeless outreach stuff tries to do food kitchen stuff. Like there's 
stuff that I like to do every year, I'm not successful at it, particularly during COVID years. This movie, I think, was very instrumental in changing my attitudes, particularly as a scared Chicago suburbs kid who was scared of the inner city and was scared of, of everybody because I had grown up with Reagan-ass fear-mongering around, surrounding me yeah. from these suburban dorks who go into the city once every year or something to go to the... They basically go there to go to a dinner or go get tea downtown during the daytime and then have a new story that they can bring back to their yeah. other fucking white suburban parents about how scary Chicago was. Um, It happens in Minneapolis all the time. Yeah. And I, as a kid, ate that shit up because fear is delicious. And uh, I think that this movie actually had a fairly positive impact on me being like very, honestly, like very annoyed with like my local church for not doing more homeless outreach stuff. Yeah, and that like around the Catholic, like like the time of year when we're supposed to be like giving, we're like, well, we do some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's we, all like we this remodeled. We remodeled the rectory. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't God want that? Um, and like I, I think that this movie, I will say something positive on that on the, that front. You can call the scene with the with the homeless woman. Um, you know, uh, condescending or um, naive or whatever. But, like, it had a genuine positive impact on my worldview and yeah. made me a person today who, like, I could, everybody could do more. But, like, I don't call the cops on my homeless neighbors. <laughs> I, I do volunteer my time. I do volunteer my money. Like, I, I try to yeah, be a- she she's she's humanized and I I think it's it's a it's a nice portrayal. I also yes. think I also think it's I mean she's the pigeon lady. I think it's a little bit insulting to call her homeless cuz she lives in the attic of the Philharmonic. <laughs> <laughs> her home is among is the-, the pigeons that live above the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> oh, I don't have a home. The entire Central Park is my home. Where do you live? <laughs> Four Adobe walls. <laughs> <laughs> I like that this movie ha- is about like, hey, just because people are dirty or people live on the streets or whatever does not mean they're not people. Like their inner humanity, something happened to them. They have a story. They have. A I mean, the people, yeah, the, the people that run the Plaza Hotel or were just workers there are terrible, and they yeah, are exactly. and glamour. Yeah, it's uh, like. There, there's a reason why people end up in 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 bad situations or, or difficult situations. Like, I can appreciate that as a incredibly simple message, especially in a current time where, like, truly, like, people fucking hate homeless people. I, they're yeah. so vocal about it. Yeah. They're so awful about it. And like, yeah. I cannot fucking stand it this time of year, especially. Yeah, you're not a fucking I, Christian if you do that. Like, you're not a yeah. fucking decent person if you do that. Agree a hundred percent, and I think that's actually the perfect place to wrap this. That if yeah. you if you want to help inspire people to be more humanist and sensitive to the homeless, I think you should sit down with them this holiday season and watch Home Alone Two: <laughs> Lost in New York. <laughs> Can't it work on a seven year old. I don't. I don't know about uh, the rest. Look, of I'm just saying. I'm not saying it's going to magically solve decades of terrible messaging and anti-humanist messaging, but it's not going to hurt. Yeah. You could try. It's it's literally the least you could do. So I do wonder. I do wonder. Growing up, I definitely had home invasion nightmare fantasies, whatever you want to call it. Everyone has some version of this, right? Yeah. Um. I do wonder how much of that was programming from watching this movie. <laughs> did, like, did anyone ever, did anyone refer to your house as a golden tuna? When you walked around your house, were you like, this is a golden tuna house? <laughs> I'm in a lot of trouble. Silver tuna tonight. Oh, silver tuna. Sorry. <laughs> golden tooth, silver tuna. Yeah. I will say one final thing. Which yeah, is say that one final thing. It still somewhat disturbs me. I don't know if it's some sort of weird, like, uh, germophobia or cleanliness-like thing in me. There's something about Daniel Stern being covered in paint and then being electrocuted that's really just got under my skin. I, I, I get it. Why. There is there is something very visceral about that that, that bothers me, too. It's too much. He looks, just, he looks like... <laughs> he looks like he's been rolled... He looks like it's like the end of Apocalypse Now. It's <laughs> yeah. awful. 
Yeah. We did too much. <laughs> I'm going to rip the paint off. <laughs> Don't rip it off. I'm going to rip the paint off. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, our third Christmas cursed quickie, whatever order that is, is wrapped. We're ending it with our Christmas special, which is, of course, season two of the Santa Claus television show on Disney+. Plus. We covered... Let me give you a history of our coverage of the Santa Claus series. We covered Santa Claus one, two, mm-hmm. three, one episode. Mm-hmm. We covered six episodes of Santa Claus season one, one episode. We're going to follow that tradition and do six episodes of Santa Claus season two. Santa Claus is season two, one episode. Um, one shorter episode. One very short episode. I have not watched any of it yet. Peter, we were surprised last year that we both enjoyed the Santa Clauses. If the if the rumors are true in that Peter directly told me this, we might also enjoy the Santa Clauses season two. Uh no, they're not true. <laughs> oh, it got worse? It got bad? It starts strong. Whatever. Okay. Alright, well, we'll we're gonna keep your mind we'll open. Finally, a Santa Claus that we don't have to praise. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> if you can't <laughs> uh if you don't have a few bucks to chip in we totally understand and you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you Uh, with kisses and smooches Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>